Unity Community of Central Oregon's podcast. So our talk today is going to be from Sylvia, who most of you know quite well. She's no introduction. She is an integral part of our community and someone who I'm sharing the ministry path with. And um, one of the things that's amazing about Sylvia is, you know, she's on the Earth Care team, and she is so deeply committed to preserving, to educating us on environmental issues, on personal change and growth, and she's just really committed her life to this, which I really, really admire. And speaking of nature, her talk is Nature, Mysticism, and Miracles. And is anyone here wants to actually meet God? God's right up the trail. <laughs> About half a mile. We walked there and I walked there last night. I'm, I'm, not, I'm totally serious. You just walk straight towards the river up there. There's a trail that goes about a half mile up, and there's this beautiful rock formation and a cascading waterfall and this giant tree that's taller than it should be that's curving over further than it should. It looks like a miracle that it's even standing, and it's latched onto the rocks, and it's just the most beautiful heavenly spot. And we sat there and talked to God for a little bit and came on back down before sunset. So if you have a time uh, a few minutes after the service and want to do an amazing hike to a little waterfall, it's just right up there. And that's one place you can talk to God if you like. But I'm sure Sylvia will share with us a few other ways to connect with spirit, God, whatever you want to call it. So let's welcome up Sylvia. Thank you. Welcome down. Do you guys mind if I just stay seated? No. We mind, we mind. Thank you. Um, so mysticism. What is mysticism? This has been a fairly new um, and exciting learning for me. So uh, Manissa and I share family with Southern Baptist opinionated background. Um, what I've learned about, what, what I've learned about that, the way that I was brought up in that version of Christianity was very much about needing a middleman, needing a church to tell you the truth and, and show you what spiritual law is and, and really needing that interface. Mysticism, I've learned, is about the belief that we don't need a middleman. It's about coming into direct experience of the God within, of our, of our direct connection with spirit and opening up and allowing truth to come through us. And I hadn't realized it, but I've been kind of a mystic my whole life. I had just never thought to call it that. Well, I'm also learning that unity is very much a mystical tradition. And inclusion of and reverence for nature is built right into the foundations of our of our movement. I want to read you a couple of um, quotes. So Myrtle and Charles Fillmore, as most of us know, were the key founders of Unity. And this is a quote from Myrtle. I was almost accused of being a nature worshiper when I was a little girl. And I've always loved what I see in nature, as well as in all artists who are so close to the beauty side of God. Nature is surely the glorified face of God. See the beauty about you, and you do see the manifestation of the infinite mind. I love that, the beauty side of God. That is what we're sitting in right now. Her husband Charles wrote, Divine mind is inherent in all life, both animate and inanimate. Even rocks and minerals have life. We should be speaking words of truth, not only to humankind, but to the animal, vegetable, and mineral kingdoms. I uh, loved the meditation and the prayer because I think there's such power in unity's affirmative prayer and in holding 
the vision of what we really do want to manifest. And I think taking time sometimes to hold the vision of this earth healing and restoring is a super powerful version of sacred activism, which is what I'm going to be talking about here for the most of this. So my, I think I was born with a thing for nature. I, can st I have a terrible memory, by the way, but I can still remember my first pet. And he or she was named Cecil, and it was a potato bug <laughs> with a little yellow, little yellow squiggle thing on its back. I think it was the same one. I kept it in the flower bed. Uh, I still remember Cecil, which is mind-blowing. Uh, and then we moved out. I shared this recently. I had an experience of a little bit of a little house on the prairie experience, unusual for my generation. We, my family moved up into the foothills of Washington State with a little shack dump of a house that came free on forested property. We lived without running water or electricity for that better part of that whole first year while we slowly built the place together, or built the place back up. And um, I loved it. I mean, I wouldn't have chosen anything else. I had a horse and I had bird dogs and we, I spent so much time out in nature uh, with just those critters and the coyotes and the bears and the deers and the blue herons. I just got extremely comfortable with nature. A little while further down the road toward my adolescence, my family situation turned very dark and that's when nature really truly became sanctuary. And I know I've spoken with many of you, probably, probably most of us happy campers here, um, are, are at the camp out because we do have a connection with nature. I have found that it is one of the best ways for me to exercise my inner mystic. I spoke a long time ago, probably many of you haven't heard this story, but almost five years ago now, my life blew up in catastrophic fashion. Um, and it was prolonged, intense, public, really, really a very difficult thing to go through, terrifying, and most of it was out of my control. It also led to be one of the most powerful gifts I've ever received. I was about a month into it with absolutely no way to see it going to conclusion or how it was going to go. And I had just come off of a couple of dirty bathroom on the couch days. Those are the days when I would crawl out of bed after a crappy night's sleep, hit the bathrobe, hit the couch and the remote control and zone, numb out all day long. And I had done that for a couple of days and eventually she'll poke me and was like, all right, for the dog, I got to get up. But the third morning, I got up really super early, just as it was barely getting light. And I rolled out to my tiny little hot tub on my, on my deck in bed. And it was one of those Central Oregon single-digit cold, cold mornings. And I'm out there, and uh, the steam is coming up off the hot water. And I think I just got to the point where my mind was so exhausted, it could not race anymore. I couldn't wrap myself around my axle any further. And I came more fully into the present moment than I ever had before in my life. And in that moment, I could literally see the particles of steam and the light coming through it. I could see the individual ice crystals on the pine needles. I became aware of layers of sound that I had never heard before. I'd been in that hot tub on cold mornings hundreds of times. I'd never seen it or heard it like that. I didn't have the words for that at the time, 
but it, I was having my first really conscious mystical experience. And as I came totally into the present moment, I, I, lost, I lost a sense of boundary around my physical self. And I had a fleeting moment of, of fear of what that meant. And then the most profound peace that I have ever experienced in my life. And I felt my connection to all of creation. I felt my oneness with God for the very first time, consciously anyway at least since I've been a little girl. I now say I think it's when I met my spiritual self, my true self for the first time. And Victor, I don't know where you came up with that song. I didn't know what song he was gonna sing, but what I say about that is those mystical experiences, I think, which often do happen in the cathedral that is nature, the cathedral of the pines, thank you, Dale. That's where we are. Um, those are the moments, it's a homecoming. It's when we actually do come home to who we really are. So as Kevin was noting, I have spent my entire adult life working for preservation of the environment, working as an advocate and an activist, and in the, uh, increasingly in the political realm. And I would say now, with the experience I've gained in the last few years, um, and learning more about this mystical tradition and new thought and where we're at, I think my focus really has shifted from just raising awareness. It used to be like, wake up, we have an environmental problem. But now it's more about raising consciousness because at the end of the day, I do believe that um, humanity coming into balance with the rest of nature is gonna be every bit as much about revelation as revolution. And I think there's never been a more important time for spiritually awakened people to figure out how to really engage on the issues that are, that are before our world today. So I mentioned um, earlier that I had been to the Unity People's Convention for the first time, and I was there because I am on the Unity Worldwide Earth Care core team. And we had been asked to present a workshop on sacred activism. And sacred activism really is an approach to finding the balance point between the meditation mat and marching. It's, and, and I want to I just talk about three different kind of layers of sacred activism, ways to, ways to take action. And I want to make note that the Unity's fifth principle is action. You know, we are, we are encouraged to pray and meditate and learn and study and then go do something with it. So one of the first ways to engage through sacred activism is a thing called subtle activism, which is what Lynn really just um, exemplified for us. And subtle activism is really doing the inner work on behalf of the outer world. And again, the affirmative prayer on behalf of our beloved earth, not just always focusing on the problem. I first found the power of this, oh, probably three or four years ago, John, my husband, and I, we do a river trip down the wild and scenic road every year. We'll be going again in August. I'm so excited I get to bring my nephew for the first time who's living with me. I take a boat, John takes a boat, we row a few people down. This one year that we went, it was pretty disturbing starting out because in the wild and scenic stretch, you can't have motors of any kind, right? If that's the glory of it. You have to have a permit to go down it. We keep it so regulated. 
That year, though, we were having catastrophic fire in southern Oregon and northern California due in part to a drying climate. And the river was at record low water levels to the point that salmonids were dying off. We're in there in this amazing wilderness stretch where no motors are allowed. And all day that first day, the air quality, you might as well have your head in a tent over that fireplace. It was so bad. And um, the giant black helicopters were going over all day long, going down rivers, scooping water out of the already depleted river to take it upstream, burning fossil fuel to take it upstream to pour it on the fire. And I was having a very hard time staying in the present moment and not feeling tremendous sadness about what was happening. By the afternoon of the second day, we had gone down river a lot. I think they'd gotten a handle on the fire. Um, the air, the helicopters quit going over and um, the air quality had improved a lot. And I was on a stretch of the river. The boys had gotten over in John's raft, so I was in my boat by myself in a really calm part of the river. And nature grabbed me back again. She, she spoke to me again and I spent time just imagining what it would feel like if we as a, as a species had achieved balance, if we really were at a place where we had, we, had, we had conquered these big issues and the earth was healing and regenerating and restoring. And it was such a profound experience for me of just weight coming off my shoulders. And I realized the importance of it because often those of us who are activists, we sit in the problems all the time. Subtle activism is something that new thought uh, movements can really play a powerful role in helping get us into solution and desired outcome a lot more often. You know, another, I would say another, this is one, one of the reasons Unity Worldwide asked us to do the sacred activism workshop is because this is a tricky topic for a lot of congregations. Maybe not so much here, but uh, in certain parts of the, of the country, they're nervous. They, we have heard on the earth care team that they're nervous even talking about issues like climate or environmental degradation. And one of the important things I think to note is that direct action even isn't, isn't, it doesn't have to be grounded in attack. We can say no to something wrong as Jesus did with the money changers without making it us versus them or an attack. That's another way of activating sacred activism. And the third one, I'm hoping to God, I'm not gonna make your eyes glass over with this one. And this is, this is the real bulk of my uh, previous professional career. Conscious consumerism is another really super powerful form of action. So we all know because of the thought system that we, we ha have immersed ourselves in, that a whole lot of what we see out in the outer world is illusion. I just want to point out that we exist in a system that tells us we have to have a continuously growing economy in order to continue to make progress and make things better. But we live on a planet of finite natural resources. So a limitless growth economy is an illusion that really defies the laws of physics. Moreover, we base the measurement of the performance of our economy on GDP. I'm going to make this really short, but I think it's important to, to question the stories we're being told sometimes by culture. Gross domestic product, GDP, all that does is measures the amount of money flowing through our system, not whether it makes us better off or worse off. 
So under GDP, the amount of money spent to keep a kid in juvenile jail counts as exactly as positive as the same amount of money spent to give a kid an education. Oh God. Even the guy who created the GDP said, don't use this as the metric of progress for your, for your um, society. So I will wrap this one piece with one example of a place that is activating both subtle activism and also challenging this particular economic paradigm. I have been lucky enough to go to Bhutan. Has anyone here been to Bhutan? It's this little tiny Himalayan country. At the time, several years ago, it was the youngest democracy in the world. It might still be. And they're running an amazing experiment for us. But I gotta tell the story of how you get in there. <laughs> there are only a handful of commercial airline pilots who are cleared to get in there. When, when um, uh, what are, what's the royalty, the England's royalty, the, the inheritor, well, who's the guy who's gonna inherit? Prince Harry? William. Yeah, William. William. When William uh, went, went to fly in there, the royal, his royal air uh, pilot said, I'm gonna do it. And the Bhutanese said, we don't think so. You come ride with one of ours first. And he backed out. <laughs> he said, no, you guys take, take the prince in. Because you come down in a 737, and you're in this valley in the Himalayan mountains. And when we did it, it was cloudy. We actually had to drop over and drop in India because they have to be able to see. They have to have line of sight to land. And you could feel those mountains before you could see them because they're so vast. So you're in a 737 coming in through this valley and the valley stops right there <laughs> and the airport is over here. So I'm in the window aisle. John was sweet to give me the window aisle. And um, we're coming down in and I'm looking down and all of a sudden the mountain is getting closer and closer and closer and closer. You should never be that close to the ground in a 737 unless you are landed. <laughs> because you're coming in and the, 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 the guy's dropping it and you've got wind turbulence from those huge mountains and then he, they bank up this big plane, they bank this big wing up, boom, and drop it in, <laughs> textbook landing. Yeah, it's a trip. Um, and we were, we, and I'm so grateful that I was able to do it and that we survived it. Um, <laughs> that's always a plus. We, we were there as part of an international group who were working on new economy models and saner, saner economic models. And Bhutan is doing something really fascinating. First of all, it's one of the most just naturally spiritual places I've ever visited. It's just, people just step off the side of the trail and stop for meditation. It's just the norm, whether you're wearing saffron or not. It's just beautiful that way. And the benevolent king of Bhutan, when the GDP craze was going on many years ago, he said, you know, I think it's more important for my people to be happy versus just productive. And that, <laughs> so they developed a metrics. They're the first country to really disconnect from GDP as a metric. They developed a thing called the gross national happiness or the genuine national happiness index. And it gets poo-pooed a lot, you know, in the West, but it's very robust. It's 26 metrics that they use that include cultural integrity and includes environmental protection. And they use it to run their governments and budgeting systems through and mindfulness and whatnot are part of it they have a thing that they that they've integrated this even into their grade school public school program 
they have a they have a little period of quiet of mindfulness in grade school in the morning and they call it mental flossing <laughs> like, like dental flossing it's just fantastic yeah so this is a i have to tell you when i was there um doing that work on that realm and then also in the afternoon getting to go visit the monasteries and whatnot it kind of felt like that little country is holding sacred space for our whole species and planet right now and i think that people like us have a chance to do exactly that um one of the things that's important to think about with this i think is that the gdp growth virtually all of it that we have had globally over the last couple of decades has been debt-based and there are growing bodies institutions and groups of people who believe that we are headed for a really really significant crumbling of the existing um, financial structure and system and on the one hand that can be scary but on the other hand i think it's a tremendous opportunity because it's going to give a chance for alternative ways of doing things to bubble up like flowers through cracks in asphalt and i think a lot of us will have a chance to be those flowers so anyway, thank you for listening to my soapbox there. <laughs> Sacred activism, I want to give you this um, uh, definition. It's from a beautiful book by Andrew Harvey called The Hope. If this is a topic that interests you, I highly recommend it. He says, Sacred activism is the fusion of the mystic's passion for God with the activist's passion for justice, creating a third fire which is the burning sacred heart that longs to help preserve and nurture every living thing. Does anyone feel that fire? I feel that fire myself. One of the things I'm learning um, in, this, in becoming much more interested in mysticism and, and miracles, um, and by the way, our, again, culture tends to think that miracles suggest something that happens outside the laws of physics. A Course in Miracles actually teaches that miracles are what happens naturally when we're properly aligned with spirit and with truth. Naturals are the natural way of being in our world. The beautiful thing about the mystical path I am finding is that those who are walking it really, really try to learn to come into the present moment much more often. And I will tell you that that practice is transforming my life, and I think it's a big, big part of how we transform our world. When we remember that we are not apart from, but a part of all of this magical tapestry of awesomeness that we get to live within and be part of, I think that is when we truly do come home to our true selves. Thank you. Thank you.